Johnson Chang, thanks very much for coming to Be In Conversation. I'm going to start a bit from left field. Every year I reread George Steiner to remind myself, uh, as George Steiner is anxious to remind everybody, that there's no real guaranteed connection between being uh, a cultured and artistically aware person and being a civilized person. And he always reminds one of that great exponent of Bach's keyboard music, who was a concentration camp commandant. And here you've devoted your life to art. Where's the, the connection for you? I think there's um, this, this dividing line between art as something demonic and uh, it could be uncivilized and mm -hmm. barbaric, um, but inspiring. And uh, the other side of the line where art becomes part of culture and uplifting. That, that sort of definition of art changes. Mm -hmm. And nowadays I think people see art very much as as much an inspiration. Uh, it can be demonic practice, but it can also become embraced as a social practice. And as far as culture goes, cultivation, as we uh, as in, um, know about it, I think um, this definition also, also changes. Self-cultivation, social mores, this changes with time. And it is art practice which leads the way, which, um, which breaks the rules, which shows what else can be done apart from what your dad and mom teaches you. Mm -hmm. that, that introduces a, a thought that shot through my mind as you were talking about art and art practice and, and today. And one of the things that I think I've observed particularly this last six or seven years where I've been involved in the cultural world, is this, the way in which the art market, if you like, is marching in lockstep with the greatest increase of inequality in developed societies that we've seen since the Belle Epoque at the end of the 19th century. The art world in the capital global world is a um, very ambiguous um, thing. After all, the art object costs very little to make very often. Mm -hmm. it, uh, it costs you time, the canvas, and a bit of paint. And mental agony? Well, mental agony we, we cannot measure. Mm. But uh, we certainly can uh, gauge the investment in making the product. Mm. So there's a, there's a huge gap in terms of cost and the fetish value that's paid for it. And that's where the museum comes in. It's the museum that becomes the... Um, the true um, guardian of artistic cultural values in modern society. But the value of art and relations to society um, do get distorted because of the market. So what do we make of socialist art? Mm -hmm. Socialist art and the, and the capitalist global art market are two very different art platforms. Sure. And uh, we also have to recognize that these are the two main uh, spheres of uh, cultural production that define the modern world. In the uh, capitalist global art world, it is possible to take an object from, say, from this table here, you put it in a museum, and you make people think twice. Duchamp's Urino. Duchamp's Urino started that, and mm -hmm. then uh, uh, that, um, that trick gets repeated. Mm -hmm. um, but the socialist world um, take, used art in a different way. Uh, socialist art basically paints a picture of the world that is not existent. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you remember, 60s and the 70s, uh, any object from China, whether it's a secret package or an ashtray or a teapot, 
they would have slogans. The form would be designed according to some sort of vision about what the, social, the ideal socialist life would be like. Mm -hmm. So the art object in the socialist world was designed not to reflect the real world. It was designed to give you a reference to what the, the future good life should be like. More like medieval ecclesiastical art. Uh, certainly, uh, socialist art was religious. Uh, it is ecclesiastical. Um, it not only shows you the forms of, uh, of the physical world you want to be in, um, it also gives a whole ideology behind it. So it's not actually quite a, a widespread expectation of a lot of people that somehow the artist is meant to be pointing us towards something higher, better, uh, than drawing our attention to the low and squalid. Well, but somehow today, if you look at art, a lot of it is about the sinister, the, um, the, Violent. the, the, uh, the underbelly of society, mm -hmm. the violence and the conflicts uh, of the world. I think the art platform serves the function as a sphere where negotiation of how to deal with the modern world happens. So we think of um, solving social problems uh, through political science, mm. through uh, economic um, decisions and new economic um, solutions. Um, but uh, life is much more complicated than that. Uh, there's social life, there is, uh, there is uh, the relation of man to the world, to his own spirit, and to his family. In fact, very often, a lot of these issues are not considered um, academic mm. or uh, uh, things that can be taken on an institutional level, which means art is a place where sensibilities which are not easily defined by modern uh, academic practices, mm -hmm. um, they are all thrown into this mixed pot called art. But that's left a residual question in my head about how this, the result, speaks to every man. The person who is loading up onto a crowded and sweaty bus at 0800 in the morning to get into a boring job which they'll slave at through until six o'clock at night and then back on the bus, back home, bit of television, sleep, how does it resonate with that experience, that form of life? Well, certainly artists do try to take that on board as well. Um, in fact, a lot of art is about this, this form of um, regimented life and about people trying to find meaning in this life. And uh, it's also the issue of... Yeah, I'm sure, and the art, I'm sure, is about that. Yes. The question was, how does that convey that that's what it's about to the person whose life is as I described. Well, that's precisely why art platform is very important. Mm. It is important for, us, for modern society to have art because this is a place where a lot of difficult problems can be, can be played out and can be experimented with. But um, we need the space for this to happen. And um, it is certainly, I think, uh, 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 certainly I think art institutions should be an integral part of modern society. Yeah, but surely should not, 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 not like uh, a reborn medieval cathedral, which you approach on your knees in awe and trembling. Well, certainly that there is a residual um, aura of the medieval church in the modern art museum. Mm. 
um, firstly, you enter a museum place and you know that there's something mysterious there because um, the artists try very hard to make it difficult to understand. That's what you believe. And artists think they try very hard to make people understand what they're trying to say. But the artwork um, also needs to have a space like this. The type of aura that you had around uh, sacred objects and the aura of art objects today uh, are equivalent because the art object in the museum today um, is, uh, is a thing which people need to approach. Um, there are artists who try to break this. Um, the whole uh, practice of participation art in the last 20 years has worked very hard to make artists a type of participatory exercise. They would take um, everyday practice and put it into the art platform to make people recognize that a lot of the things they do in the everyday uh, has a more complex and higher meaning than they take at face value. For example, there's a Thai artist mm. who would um, take uh, a reduced um, massage parlor into the art museum. And there is an art uh, artist, Chinese-American artist, who would um, arrange a one-to-one -one meal arrangement in the museum, and you have to book it. And, and he would make you very simple food and have a conversation with you for like two, three hours. So um, this type of participatory art um, tries to, firstly, to break this barrier uh, between the citizen um, and the high altar of art. But of course, if it doesn't work properly, it can end up like the confessional. In the other strand of, of your life that I was reading about, where you're recreating a village, a traditional Chinese village, here was a world where you didn't need an artist uh, to recreate uh, an episode of every day in some remote museum. But the episode of every day is actually every day itself. Mm. Well, um, there is a village project I'm involved in, although I'm, uh, less, uh, I'm, I'm less an active participant than by my brother and my sister-in-law. Um, there's an artist who actually helped to build this place. But the, the idea of um, pre-modern village life, because it's actually removed from time, mm. it does take on a, a haloed uh, aura around it. Yes, because it was squalid, full of disease, smelt yes. a lot. There's that huge contrast between that set of visions, what Raymond, the British critic Raymond Williams called pastoral, and someone like Marx, who just dismissed it all as rural stupidity and thought that real life happened in cities. Well, but uh, Marx was very much a modernist mm. and very much he was dealing with the, um, the industrial capital world that we face today. And um, uh, the, the, the stupid pastoral world is something that, even though it could be uh, out of date, but it's something we aspire to, so there must be something in it which inspires. And today, with the environmental problems we have, it's more and more, it becomes more and more something um, more haloed than it appeared in the days when smog was the order of the, uh, the day in industrial Britain. But uh, in, the, in the situation of China, the re reflection of uh, the countryside has a um, different dimension to this. It's not just about material life, but the fact that historically um, 
it was customary for the, the wealth and wealthy and powerful and also for the cultured people to bring their learning and the wealth uh, and the libraries back to the countryside. So traditionally in, in China... Wouldn't that be a bit like Western country houses? Um, it's the same sort of thing that you have yes. your base in both places. Except that uh, in China, the, um, the, the centers of uh, villages were not just church, but they were actually tied to the different local clans. So it's a, it was a more secularized mm. world, whereby the relation to the, to the earth, the relation to tradition, and also um, commitment to the land was very different. But um, also another system of self-rule. Traditionally in China, um, the clan system was very much the basis of self-rule that would, uh, that would give an alternative to the type of centralized government control that we now all loathe so much today. Mm. In many respects, government was absent from most people's lives. Uh, what, what constituted government was the village level administration by the village system itself. Yes, very much so. And also, uh, the village system would also pay for their own um, public amenities, such like paving roads and uh, doing public works and also paying for schools. So there was a very high level of uh, local participation, um, perhaps not on an individual level as we speak of democracy today, but right. very much in the, in the communal sense. Mm -hmm. um, apart from this, I think there's also a lot to be learned from the countryside in the way, um, in the knowledge that was being used uh, in living with nature. So um, the vision of the pre-industrial is not necessarily just the picture-pretty pastoral, but in uh, certain techniques of living with the world that has been forgotten. And in fact, um, some of it are being revived to great success. Leaves me faintly speechless for a moment, because I was thinking of the, of the complete alternative, this idea of, of a world of modernity mm -hmm. and urbanity, where we're looking forward and that somehow the past isn't giving us much hints on how to deal with the internet, um, how to deal with modern travel, how to deal with the structure of the modern economy, the nature of modern jobs. Well, it's always the looking backwards as well as looking forward that makes human beings um, sane and uh, social and make life livable. We talk about the advance in um, science and technology. We talk about the uh, great leaps and uh, we, we talk about a great leap forward in uh, material goods and uh, technology. But um, emotional adaptation and uh, how the human mind and uh, the relation to the world adapts, um, it moves at a much slower pace. There's this gap that we need to deal with. And in a way, um, art projects try to think about these issues and try to find uh, perhaps solutions, perhaps just symbolic uh, practices um, placed in the art space like museum for people to find solutions to think about uh, alternative ways. I mean, the artwork is not a solution itself. It, is, it is very much uh, a laboratory.
Jonathan, I sometimes think that, that part of the problem is the word art itself. It's, it's, uh, in, in funny ways, it's a divisive word. Someone like Shakespeare didn't think of himself as an artist. He was just a playwright doing a job. Well, in the modern world, I think um, this very all-embracing term modernity seems to have hijacked um, all, sorts, um, all sorts of disciplines, including art. And um, for a long time, we think of modern art as, this, as the place where things march forward. Um, modern art, um, uh, like modern life itself, um, is, a, is a journey. You have to cross from here to there. Uh, you, you have to go through a certain process. There is a mission. There is an end in, uh, uh, at the end of the road. But I think more and more, people recognize that they do not need to be an artist, but they can also be part of this world through their own uh, maybe traditional practice, like, for example, uh, in the last 10 years, there have been uh, curators in Biennales who bring in great chefs. Mm -hmm. And uh, now we say a chef is an artist. Um, we talk about hairdresser as being an artist. Then this term become uh, diluted to such a degree um, that people feel that we're now we've got to come back and rethink what art is. But is that diluting it or just broadening and deepening so that, in fact, we're rediscovering the artisan in art? Well, uh, maybe diluting is not the proper word. It certainly um, spreads the message out that it is a sphere of practice which um, people can engage themselves, and it is something possible in every walk of life. Now, that allows us to move very neatly sideways, because, of course, you, you're involved one way or another in the West Kowloon Cultural District project. Is that, therefore, given what we've just been talking about, is that more a blast from the past than something that's looking to the future? It's, it's less inclusive, less about everyday life, and much more about the great cathedrals for the professionals. Um, I think uh, as a city, um, it is very important to have a big cathedral of art because only with that can you endorse all the other things which are peripheral. And uh, um, having an institution which endorses us a certain profession like art. Well, it makes different types of cultural practice uh, legitimate. It gives a sense of, um, of structure to art making. So I think it's very important. How localized in that? I mean, is the museum's job to explain to people through art their membership of the wider community of human beings? Or is it to celebrate our little narrow part of that, saying we are Exians, and this is Exian art, and appreciate it and see that this is, this is the vehicle of a specific and exclusive identity that others don't share. Museums today cannot be an, uh, uh, an insulated, localised uh, endeavour. Uh, the building itself um, is built by a Swiss architect, and uh, uh, the contents, um, even though um, there's a big focus on Hong Kong, but mainly... Um, it is an international museum, and uh, it is um, is, a, is a place where the contemporary experience is celebrated, and the contemporary experience is uh, international and cosmopolitan. So you are generally upbeat about Hong Kong's future as a cultured rather than just a money-grubbing city? Um, I, th I think we cannot help but be cultured the way Hong Kong is going. Thank you very much.